0: Whatever your business plan is, it's probably going to change and it needs to change. So you have to be flexible. And then the second thing we've really found over time and really learned the hard way
1: is you need to have a
0: leader that can sell.
1: Even though the Kickstarter route seems exciting and seems like it's a low barrier of entry, it requires a tremendous amount of pre-planned working, digital marketing, and still a high amount of cost to be successful in.
2: As entrepreneurs and business owners, there are so many parts of business that we don't realize are necessary, available, or even options. In this podcast, we're sitting down with Scott Editon of Exactly and 6AM Sourcing and CJ Ritterbush of Concord Marketing Solutions to talk about the various options of financing from startup to established business and what those options entail. Joining me, Jessica Gibbons-Roush, chef at Promo Kitchen, and Mark Graham, also a chef at Promo Kitchen, is Scott and CJ. Welcome!
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
3: CJ, can you describe the various financing options available to distributors at different stages of their growth journey? So specifically, think startup to scale up to the more established and mature companies.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to comment on that. I really don't think the promotional product space is very different than other industries in terms of fundraising. Most businesses get started by somebody kind of in their spare time. They use their own money. They mortgage their house or whatnot. So there's really a five-stage process that I think you typically see. And that first one is really using your own money, right? Savings or whatever other sources you have to see if you have some traction in your business idea. If you do, you typically move to stage two and they call that kind of a friends and family round. You say, hey, I've got a great idea. I've got a couple customers. I'm starting to build this business. Can you loan me some money? That buys you more time to prove out your concept. And then stage three is called angel investing, and that's where I participate with some of my time and capital. And that's kind of the first professional money that would go into a business. It is what it sounds like. You're kind of an angel that comes in and a part of an angel investing group that's associated with the University of Notre Dame. And so we look at some businesses that are start. They're in startup mode, but they're typically One, two, three years in business, and now they're looking for their first professional money, might be anywhere from a half million to a few million dollars. And then if the business continues to succeed, then you would go to your first round of venture capital, that'd be stage four. So that's really professional money from a professional outside firm that would invest in your business. That's kind of what you hear in the Silicon Valley conversations. And then once you have a mature business, you move to stage five, which is private equity. And obviously, there's several industry distributors as well as suppliers that are private equity owned. We can talk a little bit more about that later as well. But which stage you want to take advantage of really depends on how fast you want to grow your business and scale it. It also depends on which side of our industry you want to participate in. If you have a distributor model, there's not a lot of capex or startup costs to be a distributor necessarily unless you start taking on warehouse space or decorating equipment you know the supplier business is different and scott can talk about that but you're designing product and bringing in inventory and you need warehouses and maybe decorating equipment that would be higher capex so your need to raise money is probably higher on the supplier side than the distributor side
3: Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think that's a wonderful framework that you've just shared there. And it doesn't just apply to people in the promotional products industry. That's certainly something that applies to the software world, for instance. And we're certainly very familiar with all those different stages that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Scott, in taking the baton from CJ, where are the primary differences when you think about these financing models when it comes to the supplier side? I know that CJ specifically mentioned that there are generally higher capital needs in the supplier business model. Can you talk about what suppliers should be thinking about when it comes to how it is that they're financing their businesses at these different stages of their journey?
1: Well, sure. And CJ laid out a great framework with from the startup all the way to the large size and the large scale business. But the major difference really with the suppliers is... The ability to hold and maintain high inventory levels and inventory to allow your business to continue to operate and grow. And that's really the biggest deciding factor into the success or the failure of a successful supplier. It's going to take a tremendous amount of upfront capital because you have to front that inventory to be able to go to market with. And then if you're a supplier that also does in house decoration, whether it's Laser engraving equipment, screen printing equipment, digital decoration equipment, and additional warehouse space. So it's quite a bit more upfront capital need on the supplier side than there would be on a distributor side where you can run purchase order. So whether that be partnering with raw material manufacturers or vendors to help front and have that inventory on consignment to going to your banking relationship. Or even now, because of the pandemic, more spotlight has been put on the SBA for funding for small to mid-sized businesses as well.
3: I want to make sure that we have time as the conversation progresses to talk about your specific experiences, Concord, and of course, Scott, with your supplier business and the relationship that you have with HIT. But I want to turn it over to Jessica so we can go further down this path.
2: CJ, I know that you've told me about so many different cool companies that you've invested in within this angel group that you're working on and outside of our industry, just all over the place. When you're really diving into a new startup company, when you're trying to decide, is this a good investment? What kind of things are you looking for and what really stands out to you?
0: I think I would answer that in two parts. The first of which is kind of the textbook stuff. And this is what you see in business school or whatever hey, what does that business plan look like? Do they seem to have a good plan? And then also, what market are they participating in and how big is that market? Because nobody's going to take over a market or invent a market necessarily, but is that space big enough that even if they have a small position, that company can be successful? And I would point directly to the promotional product space for that comparison. We all participate in a $25 billion marketplace right in North America. So there's a lot of business to go around. A lot of suppliers and a lot of distributors can be very successful participating in that space with a very small market share. So that's something we really look at. And then part two of what I would say to answer your question is more specifics and some of the learnings that I've had over eight years of doing this. And what we always say in our group, you're betting on the jockey, not the horse. So Who is the CEO or who are the two founders? And when we sit through a presentation, it's just like sales 101. But do you believe them? Do you trust them? And do you think they have a couple qualities to be successful? One of which is, do they have the ability to pivot? I think Scott could probably speak on this as well, because whatever your business plan is, it's probably going to change and it needs to change. So you have to be flexible. And then the second thing we've really found over time and really learned the hard way is you need to have a leader that can sell. So we're all salespeople to some extent, but there's a lot of founders of companies that are very smart from a technical standpoint, but boy, the CEO really needs to be out selling and winning customers. You don't have a business if you don't have customers. A couple of times we've made mistakes assuming they could hire a sales professional and the sales professional doesn't know the business as well because they didn't found the business. So that's a couple of things that I would say.
2: So you really kind of have to balance those Traditional models like you know Porter's Five Forces, different business school techniques, with more modern approach of do you think that this person can lead this business? Do they have the passion and the interest to really make people believe in what they're believing in?
0: Yeah, that's the real life aspect,
2: I guess. I know a lot of more of what you're doing is the traditional methods, but with Scott, now you started a Kickstarter campaign in addition to what you were already doing with Exactly. Can you explain a little bit more about what really made you want to go that direction?
1: When we started Exactly and we have since migrated and rebranded as Exact. we were creating a travel lifestyle product line with travel items that all needed to be connected together for the synergy to work as a greater whole or a greater kit than those individual items would be. And in order to move forward under the retail market, you can go one of two routes. You can go the digital e-commerce route, or you can go the brick and mortar retail route. Well, that brick-and-mortar retail route takes a tremendous amount of seeding, product development, and working hand-in-hand with retailers to bring a product to market. And when we started the business, we just didn't have the luxury of that time. So we used Kickstarter as a product launch platform, and there were many other businesses in the travel goods market that utilized Kickstarter to bring their product and bring their brand to the surface. And got ahead a tremendous amount of success and now have a tremendous amount of brand recognition. You may be familiar with companies like Nomadic or Peak Design. So we wanted to follow in those footsteps and take our twist on a lifestyle selection of travel goods and use that to elevate the brand recognition and to really jumpstart the movement of our incoming inventory and have people use our product out into the marketplace. So we felt that platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo we're really the right place to start launching a product and a new brand because you can get a tremendous amount of visibility and activity very quickly outside of traditional brick and mortar routes.
2: Well, and I remember when that first Kickstarter launched and I was one of the early investors because obviously you and I have known each other for a long time. And I knew that your experience working with the suppliers, the way you had and your vision. I mean, this was a no brainer to me. I can invest in this because I know that you have that direction that you want to go with the company and I know that I can trust that investment.
1: Well, and that's absolutely right. It allows people who believe in a company or people that believe in a brand, a very safe platform to be able to either support or invest into that product or brand without any repercussions whatsoever. So it really allows an investor that may not have a tremendous amount of capital to support a business and support a product line.
3: Scott, I wanted to ask a follow-up question about the Kickstarter route. In your case, it sounds like it was a tremendous success in terms of your ability to raise some funds, but more importantly, to raise awareness and to go and demonstrate that there was an interest in your product line. Can you talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls of going the Kickstarter route? And I want to make sure I'm not asking you a leading question. I'll give you what my angle is here. There was a fairly well publicized story of a product called the coolest that captured the imagination of the Kickstarter world many years ago and turned out to be a tremendous failure, primarily because they raised so much money and there was so much interest in their product that they actually then had trouble meeting the demand. And then the whole thing, I think just crumbled and I think fell down to zero. That's obviously every entrepreneur's nightmare, but are there some things that you can talk about of what not to do or what to be aware of when going down the Kickstarter route?
1: Oh, absolutely. That scenario that you've explained is something that's relatively common with Kickstarter. I personally have backed projects in Kickstarter and have had to wait two, three, sometimes four years to receive the product due to manufacturing issues or issues just like you described there. The Kickstarter route isn't as simple and easy as one would think. It's not put a listing on there, put your product on there, and people get on top of it and you deliver it. It requires a tremendous amount of pre-campaign work. It requires a tremendous amount of expense. And I'd recommend an agency that specializes in these Kickstarter campaigns because they have databases of people that are very interested in new ideas and new concepts and new businesses. And they follow these groups that are already existing. And then number three is setting a goal with Kickstarter revenue goal that's easily attainable because what Kickstarter tends to do is once you attain your revenue goal within a 24 to 48 hour period of time, they will then use their own digital advertising dollar and their own algorithms to move your campaign to the top of their marketing list. So you get increased visibility from there. So even though the Kickstarter route seems exciting and seems like it's a low barrier of entry. It requires a tremendous amount of pre-planned working, digital marketing, and still a high amount of cost to be successful in. And in full transparency, we made a few mistakes along the way. We did not hit our revenue goal because we set it far too high, but the visibility that we received from Kickstarter allowed us to be successful on the launch and onset of our product once that campaign was over. The other mistake that Kickstarter companies tend to make is they go and they launch a campaign prior to having inventory already in production or inventory on order. So then you end up disappointing your backers because it's one, two, three years. What we ended up doing is we were sure to have our purchase orders in place with our factories and had goods on the water when that Kickstarter campaign was launched so we can deliver in an adequate and a sufficient amount of time to appease the customer base. Right.
3: And it- Probably didn't hurt that you were veterans of the promotional products industry and understood how to source product and had good relationships with partners offshore.
1: It helped quite a bit tremendously, yes.
3: Absolutely. CJ, I've got a question for you. Can you tell us about a success story with a business that received funding through your angel network? And then maybe talk about one that didn't work out and maybe elaborate on any missed opportunities.
0: Yeah, we recently invested about two years ago in a business called Margin Edge, and it's a SaaS platform for restaurants.
1: Mm.
0: So it's relatively inexpensive, and it was invented because many restaurants, especially the mom and pops, are very manual. So when they receive their inventory, they didn't keep track of it. They had literally paper invoices from suppliers and things. So they're trying to automate that process and Through that automation, they've resulted in a treasure trove of data in terms of what people pay for tomatoes and other ingredients and whatnot. So that business is doing very well. Obviously, they had a challenge in the restaurant industry during COVID, but they gave their product away for free during COVID to onboard some customers, and that investment is paying dividends right now. So that one's really been exciting, a very dynamic uh, CEO that's driving that business. He was also the founder. So we're proud of that one they're not all that good. (laughs) I'll give you two more examples in terms of an opportunity missed that I missed. We looked at a business years ago called Chime. and It's an online bank. We had an opportunity very early to get into that business. But online banking to me at the time was why wouldn't you have Chase or Citibank or Wells Fargo or somebody else doing that, right? They've been banking for hundreds of years. So I passed on that opportunity. And in the end, angel investing world, they call that your anti-portfolio. So you've got your portfolio of what you invested in. The anti-portfolio is what you passed on. And they actually track that and track the metrics to see how well you're doing. Because sometimes you're going to pass on one that kills it. And that particular one has killed it. It's a unicorn. It's valued at about $24 billion. Oh, wow. Uh, That one, I'm, I'm still kicking myself and it pains me to bring it up. And then I'll give you another opportunity. We've done very well, but we did have one deal go bad. And it was a shoe company that you could actually put logos on. So it was in the retail business and really focused on like college and professional sports teams. But they got burned with a bad supplier. They had imported products and a big customer had a, it wasn't even a quality issue, but it was more of a QC issue. The wrong size shoes were in the boxes wrong and everything was all mixed up. They rejected the shipment. It was a huge order and the company couldn't recover from it. Hmm. So that one went bad, which is part of the risk you take in angel investing.
3: It's fascinating. And I'm sure that bringing up that $24 billion missed opportunity is something that maybe keeps you up at night sometimes. But I imagine you've probably internalized that and learned from those lessons and likely not to make that mistake again. So I hope not. (laughs) All right. Scott, right now, of course, you're sitting in a great spot. You've had several years of success. You've entered the market. You've seen product market fit with Exact. But take us back a few years when you were starting the business. What were the things that really worried you about whether this business was actually going to take off?
1: When we were coming up with the concept of Exact and the retail portion of our business, we had a very specific idea of how do we make travel and business travel and personal travel better and it was all predicated upon our experiences and also our ideals we're a certified b corp so we have a very big give back value and community aspect and environmental aspect to what we do and were people really going to kind of buy in to what our values were was it important to the marketplace and the general public is it was to us not only that and i mentioned a little bit earlier because we were a brand that was going to carry inventory and had to carry heavy amounts of inventory was the product going to be functional enough for people really going to like it otherwise we're sitting on a tremendous amount of inventory and it's a tremendous investment to put up up front and that can bury a company so those were the biggest fears that we had and were we marketing to the right place were we marketing to the right industry You know, we had inroads into the promo industry based upon our history and our relationships, and have done very well in the promo industry. But we were also venturing out into a retail industry that was outside of our area of expertise. So, what I would say was our biggest fear was the unknown.
3: Well, congratulations because it has turned out really well. And I must admit that I remember back in those days when you and the other Scott who incidentally has the best beard in the promotional (laughs) products industry, by the way. That's a side point. I hope he still has it.
2: That sounds like a competition.
3: Yeah, well, it's no competition. You you (laughs) can not compete with that. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I do remember when the two of you had shared the idea with me that you were striking out on your own and that you were starting this retail bag line and that was going to have some promotional channel opportunities as well. I just remember being very excited for you. And it's wonderful to see How the two of you have blossomed and have really created an exceptional amount of value in the industry. So congratulations. Thank you.
2: Scott, how did things change for you when you got picked up by HIT? Now, obviously, that wasn't your original intention, I don't think, because you were going more retail. But how did that change your business model and how you went to market?
1: Well, the decision was a push-pull type of thing. With our experience in the promo industry at previous suppliers and carrying retail brands, We saw the success of a brand being popular in the retail market and pulling through into the promo market to create a demand. So our number one goal was to try to create a demand in the retail market, and then that would flow through to the promo market. So once we had an agreement to be picked up by Hit, what it did is it made the promo sales a tremendous amount less stressful because of Hit's reach and exposure into the promo industry. So it was almost instant credibility being carried by a hit for our brand into the promo industry. So it was monumental in our success in the special markets and corporate markets.
2: That makes sense. CJ, I know that a lot of companies right now are either being picked up by other companies, they're joining franchises, there's a lot of movement. And I know that you've both worked for privately owned and private equity and the transition in between what are some of your takeaways from that experience or from the different options that are out there for distributors specifically?
0: I've seen a couple different ways. You know, I think some risk perceptions when you hear of private equity. And the first is that, boy, that's fancy Wall Street stuff. Those men and women must be perfect. They always make great investments. They're super smart. And that's not always the case. They're human beings. And like doctors, there's good doctors and, and there's not so good doctors. And then private equity, there's great private equity firms and there's not so good private equity firms. But the key with private equity is, you know, they want results. They don't buy businesses to keep them the same. They want to grow the business. They want to make it more profitable. And they typically have a time horizon. You know, it's usually about five years. They need to flip that business over. So there's tremendous pressure there. Typically, not every private equity firm is structured the same, but that's the typical model. Obviously, owner-operators, you control your own destiny. You want to grow at your own rate. You keep the profits for yourself. So there's a lot more flexibility that way, and you can control that time horizon as well. So my experience personally is we had a really great partner as a private equity firm that held a business for 10 years, which is way longer than the typical time horizon. Uh, But they did not have institutional money invested that they needed to return to investors. So it it didn't matter. They hold businesses for 20 years if it's a good business. And then we had another private equity experience that wasn't so good for different reasons. So I guess the moral of the story is there's good and bad. You just need to assess your own situation know what you want to do if you want to work for yourself or work for someone else and take on some of the pressure and responsibility associated with working for a private equity owned business.
3: I have a question for the two of you. Why don't we start with CJ and then Scott, you can answer this afterwards. But if I was to ask you the single most important piece of financial advice that you would share with a business owner, first starting their business or looking to grow their business, what would it be? CJ, what do you think?
0: If you're starting a business, it takes way longer to get sales traction than you think. And it takes even longer to become profitable than you think. And we've seen that in these angel investing all the time that business is hard. You know, we're all working hard every day. It's just not easy. You got to work really hard. And it takes time to set up all the relationships and the products and the website and all the things that you need to execute your business. So I would plan on. A longer runway than you had anticipated.
3: Would you then recommend that a business owner in that situation raise more money than he or she anticipated or expected, or to be as frugal as humanly possible, knowing that they will likely lose money for some time?
0: Yeah, you're right. It's either or, or a combination of the two, right? right. You just need to be realistic. Yeah, if you're going to go without a paycheck for a couple of years, you know, maybe it would be longer than a couple of years. And if you need to raise a million dollars, maybe you need to raise two million dollars. Yep. But you'll have milestones if you raise money. So you can go back out and raise more if you're having success.
1: I have to agree with CJ there. It's going to take longer than you think and be in a position to weather the storm, whatever that storm may be, as we've all seen in this past year, year and a half, Mm -hmm. with every business having to pivot and having to. Dig deeper into their pockets to survive.
3: Maybe a part two of that question before I turn it over to Jessica for the last question. Are there any particular types of financing that each of you feel are better than others? Let me give you an example. There are some distributors and certainly suppliers that will go and use expensive forms of financing like factoring in order to finance their receivables. And that's not necessarily good or bad, but I think we can all agree that it's expensive. Is that something that is avoidable or is it hard to make a judgment because in some cases that can be great for some business owners, in other cases it may be irresponsible? CJ, thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, good question. I'm going to take the cop out and tell you it really, really depends. (laughs) (laughs) You know, every business is different and your cash flow is different, right? So you're correct. A lot of businesses do not factor. That tends to be a little more expensive, but I've seen some very successful businesses that factor. They just don't want to be in that business of collecting and maybe their clients are a little more high risk than others and they want to offload that risk on somebody else that's really good at collecting. Yep. I think every business and every owner needs to make their own determination. and You probably need to try out a few things to arrive at the right conclusion. Yeah. I don't
3: think that's a cop out. I appreciate that answer. And Scott, is there anything that you would add to that, given that the supplier perspective is often a little bit different in terms of their exposure to receivables than, say, a distributor?
1: Yeah, I still would have to go along with what CJ said. Every business is a little bit different. And in terms of the receivable ends of things, you know, cash flow is king. And you've got to manage your cash flow to the best of your ability to operate your business the way your business is set up work with your partners and work with your customers as closely as possible. But yeah, my answer would also be everybody's a little bit different and there's no correct formula to it.
3: Yeah, I think that my final comment to what the two of you are saying, and this is putting my former distributor owner hat on here so I can happy to share this with the community that I think that what's so exciting and relevant about this particular conversation is that it is so, so important as a distributor owner, and certainly as a supplier owner as well, to have basic financial literacy in your toolbox. And I think that one of the mistakes that is made by a lot of folks in the promotional industry is that a lot of owners, this is a general comment, but some to a lot of owners will get into this business because they're very good at sales and marketing, but not necessarily great at finance just maybe not the thing that made them start a business in the first place. And I'm not suggesting that every business owner needs to be a chartered financial analyst or an accountant, but having this basic financial literacy and understanding basics like cash flow and the cost of factoring and the different ways that you can go out and finance your business so that way it's run in a positive cash flow way, Mm -hmm. that is so, so important. And I think that a lot of early stage owners will skip past that because they're so busy selling. And of course, that's one of the ironies, right? You need to be selling. But at the same time, if you don't understand how you're managing the cash side of your business, you can find yourself in a year's time where you're cash starved and the bank is calling its loans and all of a sudden you're out of business. And that's a tragedy.
2: Well, I know that I've learned a lot from all three of you. I've written down some words I clearly need to look up. Being someone who's starting a business, and even though I have an MBA and I took finance classes, I still don't know what all these things are, which is the reason that we're doing this series. But one last question for both of you. Obviously, you know the world went a little bananas with the pandemic. We all had to shift. We had to change. CJ, you guys have really hunkered down and be able to make your business very efficient. But a lot of companies are now finding that their growth is coming and sales are coming. So what do they need to do in order to scale and scale quickly? And what would be your best advice for them? And being able to afford to scale their business now.
0: I agree with what Scott said in the last response, this one's kind of related, right? Is looking at your cash flow and how do you put yourself in a position to recover. And for most of us, hopefully this is the only time in our lifetime we're gonna experience a pandemic. So this is certainly uncharted territory for all of us, right? You went through a lot of stages where you had to, you know, maybe shrink your business, conserve cash. Then we started figuring out, okay, the world's not going to come to an end. We're coming out of this today in June of 2021. Things are looking pretty good. There's no guarantees. We don't have you know, a relapse in the future, but it's really every owner, what's your cash position? How much do you need to invest? And then try to forecast your revenue. And I know we're doing that as well. We're pretty bullish on the future, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves in terms of hiring or ramping up inventory, and then be wrong. So we're trying to achieve that Goldilocks level of a little bit of hiring, a little bit more inventory, and relying on some forecasting that we hope is pretty close. So that would be my answer. Again, there's a lot of gray area there.
1: Yeah, and that's a very good point, CJ. The only thing I would add to it would be, make your budget and the formulas you've used for your budget now are going to be different than what they've been in the past and continue to review and continue to put yourself in a position to have options and to be able to pivot if pivoting is necessary. And we've all learned that the hard way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point, Scott. Haven't we all?
2: (laughs) And really the way things have gone, you've been able to master that pivoting and change and be able to still be here at the end of the shutdowns and things to be able to still grow. So kudos to you guys for being able to keep it going and going strongly.
0: Thank you. You know, I think it'll be interesting in our industry. You know, anybody that's been out to eat in a restaurant lately or been to a hotel? And I've done both. But, you know, the service isn't real good. And the reason the service isn't good, I think they're having troubles hiring people, right? It's all over the news. We've all experienced that. So they got surprised, I think, at the strength of the rebound and I hope that that's a problem we have to deal with in the promotional products industry as well. And we're certainly starting to hear from clients in terms of, you know, holding a sales meeting or going to a trade show or planning for an event. And that's music to our ears because, you know, that certainly is getting business back to normal.
3: CJ and Scott, we're so appreciative of your time and. The fact that you've shared all of your expertise with us over the last little while in this podcast and on behalf of the entire Promo Kitchen community, we are so appreciative. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.